Welcome to The Partial Historians. We explore all the details of ancient Rome. Everything from the political scandals, the love affairs, the battles waged, and when citizens turn against each other. I'm Dr. Rad. And I'm Dr. G. We consider Rome as the Romans saw it, by reading different authors from the ancient past and comparing their stories. Join us as we trace the journey of Rome from the founding of the city. Welcome to a brand new episode of The Partial Historians. I am Dr. G. And I am Dr. Rad. Welcome all. Welcome, welcome, welcome (laughs) to this episode where we are on the tail end of 444 BCE. And in this episode, we're going to start by looking at 443 BC. That's right, as we trace the journey of Rome from the founding of the city, we're in some very interesting times. A real turning point, one might say, Dr. G. It is a real turning point. We've just had this idea come to the surface of replacing the consulship in some instances with military tribunes with consular power. And as this flow and effects of this decision start mm. to play out, we're going to see some interesting things come up in the history. Whether that happens this year in particular, we'll find out together. Indeed. So let's do a very quick recap of what happened in 444, Dr. G. So there's a lot of tension, as you said, about whether they're going to have military tribunes or whether they're going to have consuls. But the last time we were talking... They chose military tribunes, but then they got kicked out of office. (gasps) I know, but not because they were doing a terrible job, just because there were some problems with the way they were elected, apparently. Apparently the auspices were taken incorrectly and something to do with the house. Indeed. And so we ended up getting consuls after all. So (laughs) So much for all of that. Oh, consuls, we're back with the old stock and fodder. All right. Indeed, indeed. But there's also been some ongoing issues with Adea because of a terrible decision that the Romans made a few years ago now. But it just keeps coming back to haunt them, where the Romans basically took land that didn't really belong to them when they were meant to be arbitrating a dispute. And the Ardeans... They haven't been very happy ever since. They have not. And this has led to an ongoing consequence where the Ardeans in 444 send some ambassadors to Rome to talk this over. Mm. Um, So while we've been expecting a lot of warfare to be on the scene, the idea being that military tribunes with consular power constitute a bigger body of people holding that imperium to lead armies and do this sort of stuff, what we're seeing instead is a lot of diplomacy and conversations happening. So there does seem to be a little bit of a disjuncture between this idea and concept of Mm. military tribunes with consular power as a necessity for facing off great numbers of enemies coming from all directions and what seems to be the political reality of 
some maybe some boring conversations that the Romans have to have with all of their neighbors about exactly how they're going to pull their finger out and stop being assholes. <laughs> so with that being said, let's jump right into 443 BC. All right, Dr. G, so who are your consuls for this year? I have the consuls, Marcus Gaganius Masserinus, mm-hmm. consul for the second time. Indeed. And Titus Quintius Capitolinus, consul for the fifth time. Yeah, now these two are quite a contrast because Gaganius was consul in 447, which was that really mysterious year, just after all the drama of the 2nd December, the 2nd secession of the plebs, all of that stuff that had happened. We had that really bizarre year where we had almost no information. And he was consul during that year where they were, I think, just trying to prevent civil war from erupting in Rome, basically. Uh, and that's when the young patricians started to get out of hand. So he was consul on that year. Capitolinus, on the other hand, oh, he's had some big consular years in his past. And it's also an open question about whether this might be two people as well, because the year spread for these consulships is quite wide. Mm. So first consulship for 71. Yeah. Second, 468. That was the big one. Yeah. 446. Um, and we're now in this uh, situation where we're, it's also 443. Yeah. Absolutely. So there's been some that have been quite recent, but then it's been going back a while. Mm, he's getting on. He's getting on. He must be pretty old by this point. <laughs> yeah. But experienced, which is what the Romans like. Mm, yeah. A man with experience, they say. Indeed. All right. So what is going to happen in this year? Well, that's a great question because I've basically got a paragraph and then Dionysus of Halicarnassus cuts off. <gasps> Forever? Uh, for a while. Oh dear. <laughs> it may be the end of book 11, but when book 12 comes into play, we are missing some information. Wow. Well, this is a historic episode then because for the past, what, eight or nine years, as we've been tracing the journey of Rome from the founding of the city, I have been reading Livy and you have been reading Dionysius. And here we are, finally, where one of them breaks <laughs> off. He's broken off. And it's I... actually amazing we managed to keep going so long. <laughs> it is a problem. He's had a little bit of gap uh, before now, once or twice, yes. just uh, briefly. But this is going to be a chunk of a few years. Right. Um, but I'll give you what's in the paragraph that I've got. Give it to me. <laughs> <laughs> so it seems that there have been some issues with the Senate neglecting certain aspects of the way that Rome operates. Mm. So because there's been so many military expeditions and, and I'm sure our um, ongoing listeners will be aware that we've been dealing with a lot of sort of military backwards and forwards, Rome having issues with her neighbors yes, and solving them by picking up some pointy sticks and running at them really quickly. Yes. And this means that other things on the home front have been neglected. Mm. One of the most essential of which is the census. Ah, yes, the census. Good old red tape. Get out the administrative gears. If Romans love anything, it becomes apparent as time goes on that they love bureaucratic process. Yeah. They like keeping tabs on everybody and they like records. And this feeds into how we understand the modern world in many respects, because these guys are all over bureaucracy. So they get people together, they count them in various ways, and then they categorize them based on the stuff they own. Harsh. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's not, they don't care about who you are as a person. It's not about personality. It's not about kindness. 
It's not about your contribution to the community. It's about how much stuff you've got. It's interesting, isn't it, when you think about it, because I guess we're so used to thinking in those sorts of terms, but we do live in a capitalist society. It's kind of interesting to have this kind of measure, I suppose. This is a proto-capitalistic society, and you can feel it with these kinds of ideas. This sense in which people's worth is measured by the stuff that they possess is idiosyncratic and... There is no way, if we're thinking about like history and we're thinking about the different peoples and societies that have existed, there is no reason why this should be the way things are measured. And the fact that it's the way the Romans measure it, and we can see ourselves in the depths of a pretty interesting version of capitalism right now, Mm. those things are connected. Absolutely. The interesting twist to the census, the way that the Romans do it, is that there is this moral dimension which becomes introduced as well eventually, where it's not just about, as you say, what you own, although that is obviously important, but it is also about how you're conducting yourself as to whether you're going to be classed you know, a certain way. That's something that develops as time goes on. But also, I feel like the reason why they want to know how much stuff you have is because they do expect people who have a lot to give back in certain ways as well, whether that's military service or whatever. Do they, though? I think they they do in the sense of they want to know what people own so that they can figure out who's going to serve what capacity in a military sense. Yes. Yeah. Although, to be honest, the more stuff that you've got, (laughs) the more likely you are to be classified as patrician, which means you basically get to be an officer rather than a foot soldier. I really hope you were going to say gentlemen. (laughs) (laughs) So you you get to be uh, making decisions, not necessarily risking your own life, although you do get kudos for risking your own life as well. Totally smacks of, say, you know, British Army, First World War. You know, if you're higher class, you're more likely to be, you you can be an officer. Whereas if you're lower class, you're going to be, you know, in the front lines and that sort of thing. Totally smacks of that. I hate it. I hate everything about it, but it is a little different to the way that we would understand a census these days. Certainly. And yeah. it turns out that there hasn't been a census for quite some time, and this is a problem. And the, the new consuls bring this to our attention. And it is notable that in 443 that we do have consuls again. Um, so I was going to say. We've yeah. Just, yeah, we've just created, the Romans have just created, not we, the <laughs> Romans have just created this new role, military tribunes with consular power. Yeah. And we've literally only had three of them in place for 73 days, according to Dionysius of Halicarnassus. And we're up to what is perhaps the second year of it being possible to have this position filled. It's not the most inspiring start I've ever seen. (laughs) (laughs) Is this the new wave of change we've been seeing in Rome? No. (laughs) Social change is always very slow. Yeah. They have the idea, but they haven't really run with the concept. Yeah. And this is, this is interesting. And this is often seen as being one of those turning point years. So we talked in quite some depth when we were talking about the military tribune idea and that whole plebs vying for the consulship, wanting to overturn the marriage laws that supposedly forbade intermarriage between patrician and plebeian. We did discuss how this could be a bit of an organizational turning point for the Roman state. It could be where they looked around and said, you know what? Things have changed. Things have changed in the last 50 or so years. We need to update the system. And that might be at the heart of what's really going on here. I feel like this censorship position is also a part of that, the rejigging of the Roman state, because 
when we've talked about the census previously, I actually think it's been mostly associated with the regal period. We've had one or two. We've definitely mentioned a few since then. Like we've had some citizen counts and that sort of stuff. But the the big moment for the census was when it was introduced by the kings. And it is interesting that we're at this point where they're like, wait a minute, we haven't done one of those for ages. Yeah. Because it gives the sense very much that this is not yet a procedural thing that's done with any particular pattern to it. Yeah. It's something that people are like, oh, we could do it. Oh, we haven't done it. Oh, well. <laughs> Until somebody gets to the point where you're like, you know what would be a really good idea? <laughs> we haven't had one of those for a while. Absolutely. Well, so things are not fully legislated and the traditions are not fully set yet. No, no. And they also come along with those ceremonies of purification. So we, I know we have talked about a census once or twice, but I know we've mentioned the last room before where the city is purified at the end of the whole census procedure. But yeah, it... It has all of those connotations to it. So I can understand that they've probably been far too busy to bother with this kind of stuff. Fair enough. Fair enough. So that's pretty much all that I have. Right. Okay. <laughs> For 443 BCE. The only other source that I've got is uh, Diodorus Siculus. Um. who has come up a couple of times uh, for me when uh, we've got a gap with Dionysius Halicarnassus. He's not known for being the most reputable source. Mm. He epitomizes other histories. He reads widely, it seems, but doesn't really go out of his way to access everything. Mm. Like he's sort of grabs what's at hand and goes with it. He's from Sicily originally, which is where the Siculus in his name comes from. Mm. And he does end up in Rome. And he's writing in between the sort of about 60 to 30 BCE. Mm. So a long time after the events that he's recounting. Mm. His take on 443, mm. I keep wanting to say 43. <laughs> We're definitely not up to that. 443 BCE is mostly Athenian history and what's going on with them and their particular battles. Right. And so, and that consumes most of it. He does mention the consuls. He gets the names pretty right. Oh. So that's... Wait, <laughs> pretty right? <laughs> These are names we're talking about here. <laughs> I know. And he often gets them pretty wrong, but he does get them pretty right this time. Like Marcus Guganius Marcerinus is correct. Okay. And he gives us Titus Quintius. Right. Uh, just leaves off the capital Linus. Oh, okay. That's all right then. Yeah. Yeah. I'm giving... That's like a 90%. No, no, I, when you said pretty right, I'm like, what did he change? Like 50% of each name? No. All right. Well, I have a little bit more detail about this whole censorship process. I mean, it honestly feels really unnerving for Livy to have more detail than Dionysius <laughs> on these sorts of things. I'm really excited about this. <laughs> it's not crazy amounts because this is Livy we're talking about here, but... There's a bit more discussion about this actual role of censor being created. So rather than it being something that happens or, for example, that the consuls might carry out in place of the kings who used to carry it out, they talk about creating this actual office of censor, which is why it seems like a bit of an organizational turning point, you know. Fine-tuning that bureaucracy. It's exciting times here at the Partial Historians. <laughs> Do you want a, a brand new role in our government? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the consuls are still kind of preoccupied by the fact that Rome 
still in a vaguely threatening situation militarily. We have discussed the fact that war seemed to be looming. The fog of war surrounds us. We can't see the enemy, though. Yes. And so carrying out a census, obviously, is a huge amount of work in terms of, you know, counting all the citizens, figuring out what jobs they do, how much property they have, and all of that kind of stuff. And it was seen as being beneath the dignity of a consul. Ouch. I know, right. (laughs) And that's why they decide, look, we really need someone who is going to be the magistrate for this thing. I like being the big decider. I don't want to have to deal with all of the little decisions that go with being a censor. Basically, yes. So like, how can we free up some mental space for the consul? You know, I mean, they're they're burnt out, man. They've got bigger issues to think about. Yeah, how are they going to have those big picture leadership visions? All their time is taken up with administration. The minutiae exactly. of the bureaucracy. Yeah, no time for it. <laughs> so they decide we really need to have different magistrates who are going to have people that are going to help them out to take charge of the records and really make this a more regular, orchestrated thing. God, I love the Romans. <laughs> <laughs> So the senators love this idea because this would mean more patrician magistrates in Rome, Dr. G. Oh, thrilling stuff. Yeah. (laughs) That's just what Rome needs. Yeah. The patricians see big things ahead for this. They're like, if we get the right type of people, and by the right type of people, I mean important patricians, (laughs) into this role, it would naturally become an important magistracy. You can Uh just see it. You can just see it happening. It would have that certain... Yes, it's going to have that ring of influence about it, isn't it? Exactly. And of course, the tribune of the plebs, (laughs) being dull as they are, (laughs) they have no problem with this because they see it as something that is just a function, you know, that needs to be performed, something that just has to happen, not something that is necessarily super important. And they also... (laughs) Want to be seen as troublemakers? Heaven forbid that they be seen as troublemakers in the Roman state. Wow, the tribune of the plebs—they've really settled down this last year or two, haven't they? Well, I think this is a bit of that elite bias coming in, perhaps, and also completely written with hindsight because we know that the office of censor does become important. We know that people like Augustus are going to end up wielding it to great effect by the time that Livy is writing. So I feel like he is being overly snooty and insinuating that they should have somehow foreseen what this position was going to end up meaning. Ah, this is a a miss by the tribute of the plebs. Exactly. They should have registered some complaint early on. Pretty much, yeah, (laughs) exactly. So the very, very top people aren't particularly interested in taking on this position because it isn't super important. It does sound like work as well. And if I was a patrician, I'm not sure I'd be in for that. Oh, it's definitely a lot of work, even if you do have helpers. But I actually have some names. Oh, yes. I don't don't even know if Dionysius gave you names or not. Nope. There you go. Okay, so I've got one Lucius Papirius Mugulanus. Mm. And I've also got one Lucius Sempronius Atratinus, Ooh. whose name I That's think a, we were. That remember. sounds familiar, actually. They both had been Suffolk consuls in the previous year. Oh, okay. So <laughs> they really should ring a lot of bells. <laughs> <laughs> should have rung more bells than they rang for me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 
It's at this point, so the census is all wrapped up by this point. It's at this point that the envoys from Odea arrive again. They're in desperate need of help because their city is on the verge of collapse. They tried to keep things as peaceful as possible and, you know, just keep it under wraps because that's what Rome had wanted. But they are in a position where civil war seems imminent. There are factions that are threatening to tear Odea apart and this has all had its roots in a private conflict when a hot plebeian girl attracted the interest of both a patrician and a plebeian. Be Ooh. prepared for a soap opera ensuing. Yeah, I'm excited. This is this is what it, this is what had helped the factions to develop. Okay, sounding a little bit like the Virginia story in a in a way, or Virginia. Sorry. <laughs> Basically, the plebeian guy obviously needed the approval of her family. The patrician guy, on the other hand, he was really just interested in her because of her very good looks. Ah, yes. Yes. Classic patrician move. Yeah. This, of course, had led to lots of party strife in the household of the girl about the, the politics of these guys and the factions that they come from. The mother preferred the noble... The, the patrician, I should say, because obviously he would offer her certain opportunities in life. And he, she wanted her daughter to marry as well as possible. But her guardians thought it was important to ally with their fellow plebeian. Okay, Interesting. Indeed. And they really couldn't resolve the matter in their own household. And therefore, this results in a huge legal case. And the magistrates had ended up deciding in the favor of the mother and allowing this girl to marry the patrician. Now, I'm just going to flag here that in the translation that I was looking at, it mentions that the patrician was from the Optimates party. Oh, that seems way too early for the Optimates to come into play. It is. Asterisk listeners. (laughs) Definitely. This is something that is very much a term I would associate with the late Republic. And even then, late Republican historians still are unclear about exactly what would make somebody an optimate as opposed to the other faction, Mm. which is the populares. Yes. I think the general gist, and again, it makes sense, I suppose, given when Livy's writing, and I probably should have consulted the original Latin, but as usual, I forget to do that kind of thing. (laughs) But I presume that because of the notations in this that they had already done that. I think the connotation is meant to be that this patrician is very much about the elites in his allegiance, not the people. I mean, I think that's what we're meant to get from this. But yeah, it's a just, sense that he's a conservative-leaning patrician elite. Yeah, I just thought it was really interesting. She must that... be very good-looking at this point. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? It seems <laughs> He's bizarre. forsaken all of his class values. <laughs> One would think. For yeah. this woman. Just because she's hot. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> Ancient Rome serving it up in 443. I know, so so much drama. Anyway, so what ends up happening is, of course, after this legal decision is made, her guardians are not prepared to abide by this decision. So they decide that they're going to publicly address a crowd of their fellow plebeians about how ridiculously unfair this decision was. The guardians then get together a gang and abduct the girl from her mother's house. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) I told you, this is a total soap opera. Ardea coming to the rescue. (laughs) Anyway, so this is obviously very, very problematic, very dramatic at this point in time. But the patrician is hardly going to let this lie. You've got to be kidding. He gets together 
a gang of his own warlike aristocrats. Of course. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So literally gang warfare breaking out as a result of this girl and her good looks. I mean, hello, Helen of Troy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, there's some really interesting parallels here, isn't there? Yeah. So this results in a battle and the plebeians lose. On the streets. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, it doesn't specify, but I presume so. Yeah. Results in a battle. The plebeians end up losing, but they set up camp on a hill and then from their camp, they go forward and destroy the farms of the patricians. And they start even thinking that maybe we're just going to lay siege to the whole of Ardea. What? Why, why stop at just farms? <laughs> why stop at just patricians? Let's just go nuts. Other people have started to join them, not for their lofty moral reasons, but because they just want stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, I can see Ardea being pretty annoyed at this point. This is why the Ardeans have come to Rome and been like, um, um excuse me. <laughs> we seem to be in a spot of bother, please. <laughs> and there is some private interests uh, taking hold around our homeland and we're not best pleased. Yeah. So the patrician faction in Ardea had been the ones to ask for help from Rome. Right. So let's be able to imagine the envoys speaking in very lofty tones. <laughs> he's ridden in on a berry and he's wearing tweed with elbow patches. <laughs> on the other hand, the plebeians have sent for help from the Volskians, who are also Smart move. <laughs> yeah. Who are also in the same region as as Rome and Ardea. Well, well yeah, yeah, so if we're thinking about visualizing this on a map, yes. Rome Think of Rome as being in the center of the map. Yes. Ardea is to the southwest on the shore. It's on a, it's a coastal town. Mm-hmm. And the Volscians are to the southeast of Rome. And so they're kind of sitting at the same sort of like, is it longitude as Ardea? But they, no, they, it's latitude. Latitude. Do you know how I remember that? Because I had to teach geography for a little while. Oh. Latitude is flatitude. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I have issues with things that involve the nature of the globe. Where how you name wins and also reading clocks. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm gonna put them all together as issues <laughs> that I have. So the Volskii are sort of the neighbours of Ardea, but mm. also neighbours of Rome. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And historically one of Rome's greatest enemies at this point. Oh, definitely. There's been so much conflict between them. So the Volskians send out a rescue party led by Cluilius. A name we might remember. Mm. Yes, yes. An Aquian Cluilius. And they get to Ardea first and they start helping to besiege Ardea because they seem to (laughs) go along with this idea that, sure, let's just besiege the town. Well, the Volsci I have an interest in Ardea and they have done for quite some time. Yeah. And that's been facilitated by the fact that Rome has weakened Ardea's defences over time as well. Mm. So the Volsci I have this reputation of sort of popping in under the radar as Rome has weakened somewhere and being like, and now it's ours. And Rome being like, hey, wait a minute. (laughs) And there is often an association between the Volskians and the Aquians. So this all adds up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the Romans, of course, hear about what's happening. So one of the consuls, Marcus Gaganius, ends up leaving with an army to assist in this situation. When they are getting close to enemy forces, he obviously sets up his camp. He lets his soldiers, you know, splash some water on their face, freshen up a little bit, put on some new mascara, you know, get out the pumps and that sort of thing. Then 
They march out though. So fast that at sunrise, the Volskians realize, oh my goodness, we're actually in a bit of a risky situation here. The Romans are here. Yeah. Damn it. The position that we're in is actually kind of even worse than Ardea's position right now, given where the Romans have set up camp and how quickly they've managed to trot out against us. Gaganius also managed to ensure that his friends in Ardea could come and go as they please. So the Volskians clearly had not managed to completely surround the city in this siege. <laughs> the Volskian commander also did not have food supplies stored in advance, which... Wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. That is a logistical error of a high magnitude. How long did they expect to be on the field? Well, I think this is the thing. I think this is why they got there first. They didn't really think about it too much. <laughs> they just went. They're like, we're around. Yeah. Hello. We're in the area. We'll pop by. No problems. And so his men had been relying on just foraging in the local area for food. And now he finds he has no supplies. This is probably why he realizes he's in a worse situation than Ardea because the Romans have probably cut him off from any real food No supplies. foraging for you. You're no. Like, yip, 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 back to the camp. No, exactly. <laughs> I'm hungry. So naturally he does the smart thing and asks Aganius if they can enter into negotiations. Okay. Like, look, if the Romans are intending to put an end to the siege, why don't we just call it quits? We'll just we'll just go home. Okay? But the Romans say, not so fast there, chappy. You attacked our allies. You don't just get to walk away. Gaganius demands that what they need to do is hand over their general, lay down their arms, admit that they have been soundly beaten. <laughs> and give in to Roman authority. If they refuse, the Romans would be their most determined enemies for all eternity. Wow. Yes. <laughs> yes. Gaganius, you might be gathering. He is... sounds like a little bit of a douchebag. But you know what? He's determined that he is going to go home with a resounding victory. I, I was going to say, he wants a triumph. Oh, yeah. And he's going to find a way to get one. Absolutely. And he also doesn't want a kind of slushy piece. <laughs> he wants something that's going to look really impressive. Volskii, down on your knees. <laughs> exactly. The Volskians, of course, can't really agree to these conditions because they're just far too humiliating. And so they are forced to enter into battle with the Romans in a position that's really great never go into battle on an empty stomach <laughs> that's right always carry a snickers always yeah. yes you're not yourself when you're hungry they're not only starting in a bad position but they're also in a situation where if things don't go well for them they're not going to be able to run away very easily ah yes so <laughs> spoiler they're decimated <laughs> Oh, come on, Volsky. I, I mean, I feel for them. I feel like the thing to have done here would have been to be like, we just need to go back and talk about your suggestions and yes. we'll come back to you with an answer. Go back to camp, pack it up quickly and run away. Yeah, exactly. So what a failure of strategy. So terrible that they beg the Romans to stop the battle. I don't know what that looks like in the middle of a battle, but I'm imagining they're just sort of dropping to their knees, dropping their swords. I'm guessing yeah. that there is signals of surrender yeah. that are universally known in the area. Yes. And so they willingly then hand over their commander, 
hand over their weapons, and they are made to pass under the yoke with a single garment each. Oh. Completely humiliated. Yes. Now, passing under the yoke, this Mm. is something that we have encountered before. We have. And it is what seems to be a ritual that encompasses both humiliation, to a certain degree, for Mm. the defeated, but is also a ritual acknowledgement of their failure Mm. and their consent in some ways to fall under Roman leadership. Mm, Which is an interesting one, isn't it? So the remaining defeated Volscians, once they've gone through this process, they set up camp near Tusculum. We haven't talked about Tusculum for a while. I like Tusculum though. It's cute. I know. The Tusculans, however, are holding on to an old grudge, no doubt made during one of the numerous conflicts between Rome and who would have been assisted by the Tusculans, who are their allies, and the Volscians, who are traditional enemies. And so they decide that they're going to attack this Volscian camp, even though they are clearly in no position to fight back. And as a result, there are apparently only very few survivors from this Volscian force. Okay, so Tusculum turn up and and finish off what Rome has... has started essentially with well, this only because only because the Volscians go near them. Okay, okay yeah. as they're retreating, they they set up a camp near Tusculum, right? Um, and so they're, I guess, just taking refuge there. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Tusculans aren't having that. No, and because it, it does seem to be an interesting force that the Volscians have assembled here. I'm not even sure how official this army is meant to be exactly, mm. but certainly it is a group of people from the Volscian area. Yeah, but how official it is is a bit unclear so they had retreated in disgrace maybe they just didn't want to go home after everything that had happened so the Volskii have retreated visually on the map they've retreated to the east Mm. and Tusculum is one of these uh, places that is in the foothills of the Albion Hills yeah so they're sort of heading back towards their homeland but they have to pass by Tusculum to some degree in order to get there yeah and they've ventured too close I mean, maybe because they passed under the yoke. I mean, maybe they were kind of going into that area because it is associated with Roman, you know, Roman allies and Roman control. Tusculan didn't know that the yoke passing had already happened. They did not. (laughs) You've got to be yoking me, not these guys. (laughs) Anyway, so the Romans are now free to restore order in Ardea, which they do very efficiently. Typical Roman style, just chop off the heads of the people that started the trouble. Wow. Yeah. Then then let's take their property and put it in the public treasury. Now everybody's happy. <laughs> in the public treasury of Ardea or in the public treasury of Rome? It doesn't say, but I'm presuming Ardea because they are restoring order in Ardea. Yeah. yeah. The Ardeans, sorry, I shouldn't say the Ardeans. The Ardeans apparently is what they're called. Ardeans just seems so I much... think you can say Ardeans. That's yeah. a very English thing. That's okay. Yeah. The Ardeans felt that the Romans had now repaid their debt. So after that terrible decision that they made, they have helped them out. But the Roman Senate is actually still feeling really guilty about that thing. They just... The disgrace really hangs over Rome for years and years, according to Livy's account. So... Gaganius goes back to Rome anyway, of course, gets his triumph. Exactly, feeling pretty good about himself. Cluilius, the guy that had been the commander of the Volscian forces, is made to walk in front of his chariot. There is all the booty taken from the Volscian army before they made them pass under the yoke. So 
stats all looking pretty good for him. Quintius Capitolinus also is singled out for praise by Livy because whilst Gaganius was off doing all that kind of stuff, he made sure that there was peace in Rome itself, making sure that law was justly applied, whether you are a patrician or whether you're a plebeian, my no friend. No more gang warfare. No more chasing after pretty women in the streets. No, or abducting your own relatives. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Could have so, been a tough year for this kind of thing. Yeah. So the senators are really happy because, oh, and I, I presume by senators, Livy also is obviously just meeting patricians more generally. They are happy with Quintius Capitolinus because they see him as being, you know, a strict consul, someone who's keeping things in line. But the plebeians are not alienated by his strictness. They don't see him as super oppressive. They see him as someone who's got a lot of personal dignity and integrity integrity and they're happy to work with him he can hold his own against the tribune so kind of everybody is happy i think as we were flagging at the beginning of this episode the fact that he has held the consulship so many times and seemingly over such a long period of time he is an older man by this point his experience counts for a lot he's very beloved by the whole population Mm, he's well known to everybody yeah absolutely and he he carries himself well he's he's fair you know he's strict but he's fair and Livy says that by this stage of his career he himself is almost more revered than the office of consulship itself (gasps) I know fanning myself a little bit here (laughs) and because Gaganius and Quintius Capitolinus are doing such a great job in terms of internal harmony, external victories. I mean, come on, what more can you want? People are forgetting about the idea of military tribunes. Oh, no! (laughs) No! Yeah, when you've got men like these on the block, who has time for it? Oh, just when the patricians have their sights on being able to have some proper imperium. I know. Everyone's like, nah, it's going really well with the consuls now. Don't worry about it. Exactly. So that is where I wrap up the year, 443 BC. What a year. Thank you for sharing Livy's account. I wish I had something to share in return. <laughs> Look, I, I can't believe that Dionysius breaks off just before that soap opera. I know. Yeah. But anyway, that means, Dr. G, that it is time now for the partial pick. Thank you, Igor. You rejoined us again. Miracles. The the eagle returns. Indeed. Well, the partial pick. Rome has the potential to earn 50 golden eagles. Mm. Mm. Across five categories, each ranked out of 10. Mm. Let's find out together how well Rome is performing against their own criteria. Okay. Military clout. Well... I mean, it's pretty good. A Gaganius. Gaganius does all right for himself, he doesn't he? He certainly does. Well, well, well. Does it get any better than that? Only when the two consuls go out and have success, I think. Oh, and also, I mean, if we think about what he's actually doing, I mean, resolving this kind of a conflict, I don't know if it's the most illustrious thing I've ever seen. So I'd probably <laughs> give him maybe like a seven. Okay. Yeah. 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 I was going to say, it's not a full 10, I don't think. I think think we've seen better, and I think Rome can do better. I mean, he milked the most of this opportunity. There's no doubt about that. (laughs) That means we move on to diplomacy. Well, okay, even though obviously warfare tends to imply that diplomacy has failed, 
I think the Romans did kind of try. Like, there was some negotiating. It was pretty strict. I don't know. I mean, isn't it the case that Ardea came to them to Mm, negotiate? I think we could say that the Ardeans are engaging in diplomacy. That's true. And Rome has responded by sending an armed force. That's true. Which may or may not have worked out for Ardea. But is that diplomatic? Maybe, maybe not. Yeah, that's true. Okay, so maybe like, I don't know, a one... (laughs) I was going to say maybe a three, so we could go with a two, perhaps. Okay, let's go with a two. All right. Expansion. Well, not really. I mean, they're just settling a civil dispute in a neighbor's area. They definitely haven't gained more territory. No. That is is a firm zero. Yeah. Weirtus. Hmm. Ah, look, Aganius is doing some pretty... Like, he's being strict. He's being really clear about what he wants. Yes. And he succeeds in getting it. That's true. So, from a Roman perspective, not only has he been courageous in putting forward a really robust position of what he wants. Yeah. But he's also found the means in order to acquire it. Like, when it comes to battle, he goes in and takes it. Oh, yeah. And and the Romans, particularly the Senate and the patricians, are feeling a really strong sense of shame over the whole business with Ardea and Rome basically stealing its territory. <laughs> and so this is kind of like a redemptive it moment is. as well, more broadly yeah. for Rome to sort of maybe rectify some of the poor decisions it's made in the past with relation to Ardea. Yeah. Having said that though, I don't know that it's again, the, the best example I've ever seen. <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm yeah. not going to suggest that, no, no, but I think there is some weird to us at play for sure. And Romans at the time would have been like, there is some weird to us here. Yeah, definitely. I recognize weird to us. Um, Even Quintius Capitolinus. I mean, it's a little bit different, obviously, but the fact that Livy singles him out for particular praise. Ooh la la. Yes. Mm-hmm. Quintus, Quintus. Is he good looking? Do I have to form a gang? <laughs> <laughs> so maybe, I don't know, a five? Yeah. Yeah, okay. All right. And that leaves us with the final category, which mm. is the citizen score. How nice is it to be a Roman citizen Walk on the streets in this year. Okay. Not great in the sense that after fighting so hard to get military tribunes with consular authority so that plebeians can hold very important offices, they're not getting that. So that's not great. However, the plebeians are said to be satisfied with their leaders at this point in time, and justice is apparently being administered fairly regardless of what group you belong to in Roman society. There also is a patrician gang coming <laughs> after a plebeian group. Well, yes, but that's an Over... idea. That's an idea though. Well, but... <laughs> but... <laughs> and there is also a plebeian gang coming after <laughs> the patricians. And the whole garden of city. There is some... Uh, yeah, I mean, I have some questions. And maybe Ardea doesn't count under this sort of Well, metric. I think that's the question. Yeah. Are we including what is happening in Ardea? Because that story I told you is definitely an Ardean yeah, story. Yeah. And I guess not. I think it would be... That's definitely not how this category works. This right. is how good it is to be a Roman citizen yes, right now. Yes, yes, yes. And Roman citizens seem to be pretty happy with their lot right now. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so, so maybe like a five again? Yeah, it's not, it's not like they've had great concessions or anything. It's not like their lot has improved. No. But it certainly hasn't gone backwards. No, and as I say, the main thing that they're always concerned about, and this is where the patricians are so goddamn stupid, they 
tend to get uppity and demand more rights and all of that kind of thing when they are being treated unfairly, which makes sense. At the moment, they're not being treated badly. They're not being treated as second-class citizens in the sense that it's not... Not in a way that they've noticed and decided to complain about. (laughs) They are, obviously, always, but it's not in such a way that's, like, so egregious that... They, they have to say something. Yes. Speak now. It's, We're being oppressed. Yeah. There aren't people being, you know, murdered in the streets. So that's a win <laughs> as far as they're concerned. Which means, Dr. G, that we have a grand total of 19 golden eagles for Rome this time. I think that's probably the highest it has been. I think that's, yeah, it's pretty really good for a while. Yeah. Um, it's definitely not a pass. Uh, <laughs> yeah but you know it could have been much worse it definitely could so there you go to sum up 443 bce a fairly mediocre year but <laughs> oh, classic times for rome yeah well it has been a pleasure to speak with you as always and to learn all about livy's account of what's happening with Ardea and how the romans are really coping with themselves right now absolutely see you next time We hope that you have enjoyed listening to this episode of The Partial Historians, and we would like to send a special thank you to all of our Patreons out there. And this month, we would like to say a particular hello to Zira, Tamara, and Justine, who joined us all the way back in 2020. Ah, 2020. If you too would like to become a Patreon, then please head on over to our page and pledge your support. It really helps with the costs of running the show. In return, you get early access to special episodes and also some new exclusive Patreon-only content. However, if you aren't able to support the show in that way at the moment, that is completely fine. You can also help us out by spreading the word about the Partial Historians wherever you go, whether it's in real life or on social media. Until next time, we are yours in ancient Rome.